Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, today I'm speaking with James Clear. James is the author of the book Atomic Habits, which has been repeatedly recommended to me. Many of us go through life aspiring to acquire good habits and aspiring to lose bad ones, and we treat that process as though it were fundamentally mysterious. But as it turns out, some people have thought a lot about habit formation, and James is certainly one of those people. So I wanted to get him here on the podcast to talk about it. Really, anything you want to accomplish in life that depends on your behavior in any sense is almost entirely dependent on the kinds of habits you can form, whether they're around work or diet or fitness or relationships, or a practice like meditation, it's really all a matter of acquiring good habits. And now I bring you James Clear. I am here with James Clear. James, thanks for joining me. Hi, Sam. Good to talk to you. So you wrote this book, Atomic Habits, that was recommended to me many, many times before I picked it up. It's a great analysis of habit formation and what it takes to discontinue bad habits and form good ones. And there's a lot of detail here that I want to get into, but you have a, an interesting personal story of how you came to this. You really you had an experience of having to rebuild your life in an impressive way, but maybe we should start there. How did you come to think about habits and uh, how was this forced on you by um, the whims of chance. <laughs> right. Well, I um, I grew up in a family that played a bunch of different sports. My dad was a professional baseball player. He played in the minor leagues for the St. Louis Cardinals. And I played a variety of things growing up, and sports played a big part in my childhood until I was about 16. And uh, the final day of my sophomore year of high school, I suffered this very serious injury where I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. and. It was an accident. A classmate of mine took a swing and the bat slipped out of his hands and sort of rotated kind of helicopter style through the air and struck me right between the eyes. Mm. So broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, your ethmoid bone, which is like fairly deep inside your skull, shattered both eye sockets. I looked down, I had spots of red and blood on my clothes. I had one classmate who literally took the shirt off his back and gave it to me to kind of plug up the, the blood coming from my broken nose. And I was sort of unaware of how seriously I had been injured. You know, everybody's running over to me. My, I, we kind of started making the long march down back into the high school. We were on this field outside of the school. And uh, I got to the nurse's office and started to answer questions, but I didn't answer them very well. And uh, I think the third question they asked me was, what's your mom's name? And that took me about 10 seconds to answer. And that was the last thing that I remember. So the swelling in my brain got to the point where I lost consciousness you know, taken out of the high school on a stretcher, went to local hospital. When we got there, I started to struggle with basic functions like swallowing and breathing. Uh, A couple minutes later, I lost the ability to breathe on my own. So they had to intubate me. Nurses are pumping breaths into me by hand. Uh, Around that time, I had my first seizure of the day. Uh, I'd end Mm -hmm. up having three more. And so the doctors conferred and decided it was too serious to handle at the local hospital. So they had to air care me to a larger facility. So, um, my mom came with me on the helicopter. I'm unconscious at this point. She holds my hand the whole way down. We fly to this larger hospital in Cincinnati and, uh, we land on the roof of the hospital and a team of, I don't know, a dozen doctors and nurses come out, wheel me into surgery, take my mom off to a waiting room where she meets back up with my dad. And, um, as I was getting ready to undergo surgery, I had another seizure. And so I guess they decided that I was too unstable at that time. So they placed me into a medically induced coma. and around this time, a priest comes up to my parents and actually this particular facility, this particular hospital, they were familiar with it because about a decade before, uh, my sister had been diagnosed with leukemia at the age of three. And this was the same hospital where she had received her chemotherapy treatment. So Mm. turns out it was the same doctor, uh, or the, sorry, the same priest that had met with them a decade prior that they also talked to that day. Thankfully, the story, you know, has a, a, a good ending. So I spent the next day uh, in that medically induced coma. 
about 24 hours later, my vital signs had stabilized to the point where doctors decided to release me from the coma. So I wake back up and um, the process of healing sort of begins. And this, the reason I tell this story, the reason I, I think it's related to the discussion we're having now is this was a time in my life, you know, all humans have habits. I mean, we're building them from the time that we're born. But this was the first time when my hand was forced and I had to start small. Uh, you know, I didn't have a choice. I couldn't just flip this switch and go back to the normal, young, healthy person that I was before. All I really wanted was to get back on the baseball field, get back to, you know, living my normal life. But my first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line. Uh, I couldn't drive a car for the next nine months. I had double vision for weeks. And so I started by just doing these small, simple things that Almost now, like as I talk to you now, it almost seems insignificant. You know, like I went to bed at the same hour each night or prepared for class for an hour each day. This is the first time in my life after physical therapy was done that I started training consistently in the gym. So, you know, first once or twice a week and then eventually three or four times. And they were small habits, but they gave me a sense of control over my life again, something that I felt like had been ripped away. And so gradually I started to build confidence, rebound, recover. I never ended up having a successful high school baseball career. I, I got, was the next year when I went out for the team, I was cut. It was the only junior to be cut from the varsity team. Senior season, I made the team, but barely got to play. But I did manage to kind of weasel my way onto a college team and continued to build those small habits and get better. And so my freshman year, I came off the bench. Sophomore season, I was a starter. Junior year, I was the team captain. Then my senior season, I ended up being named to the Academic All-America team, which is about 30 players around the country. Mm. And, you know, I never played professionally, but I do feel like I was able to maximize my potential uh, and kind of make the most of the circumstances that were, were pushed my way. And I think that's really kind of the lesson for many of us with habits and, and the role that they play. You know, I, I kind of broadly see three major pillars or things influencing our outcomes in life. I mean, you got luck and randomness, which by definition is not under your control. You have your habits, the behaviors that you practice and the actions that you take, and you have your choices, the strategy that you follow. And you can't control luck and randomness, but if you can control the other two, if you can make good choices and build good habits, then you can often kind of get luck to sort of go your way. You can increase your surface area for good things to happen, mm. despite the randomness that, that comes along. And that's kind of, I feel like, the punchline of my story. You know, I, I don't really know that there's anything legendary or heroic about it. Uh, we all face challenges in life, and this was just one that I faced. But it did teach me about the importance of small habits and how they can help you rebound from challenges if you're willing to stick with them for you know, months or years. Was your ability to rebound obvious from the start or was there a period where you kind of tipped into depression or despair and took some significant period of time to even find your way toward growing your way out of this predicament well i the first thing i said when i woke back up and sort of was cognizant of what was going on was i never asked for this and i think a lot of people feel that way when uh challenges kind of come their way it's like you know why me or stuff like that mm -hmm. So I'm sure that I did have a period uh, where, you know, it was hard. Looking back on it now, I, what I remember is trying to be very positive about it. There's this interesting, I, I've been thinking about this more recently. You, maybe you've seen this in your own life as well. There's this, there are like positive and negative feedback loops throughout life. And there's this, this interesting thing where stuff kind of feeds on itself in either direction. You know, like you're a little bit overweight and that makes you feel a little depressed. And so then you feel like sitting on the couch more and eating your feelings away and then you get more overweight and just kind of this downward spiral. Yeah. And then the same is also true on the upward side, you know? And so I, for whatever reason, I think as I was rebounding from that, I tried to focus on some small win, some little foothold that I could get to push off of and move the momentum in a positive direction. So maybe, at, you know, that first physical therapy session, that was something like, you know, being able to successfully complete each exercise or to do the number of reps that were prescribed from the physical therapist or whatever. But that is a very small, tiny thing, but gave me a little foothold. And I could use that to propel a little momentum into the next thing. And it, weirdly, if you're, if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to look at life that way and to continue to try to drive that momentum, you do sort of get this flywheel effect over the course of a couple of years. 
And pretty soon you're almost surprising yourself by what you're doing. And I think that small habits do sort of compound on each other in that way. I'm struck by the fact that many of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about habits per se, but we, we think about our lives, we think about our relationships, we think about our health, our finances, our careers, the distance between our moment-to-moment experience and the experience we imagine we want in life. And when you look at that distance, when you look at the quality of any aspect of our lives, we are quite obviously inheriting the consequences of our habits moment to moment. And yet it's, I mean, often it's once a year, it's at at the New Year's resolution moment that people think about Mm. actually getting behind themselves and pushing to change something they're doing in their lives or not doing. How do you think about a habit? How would you define habit? Well, there's a couple different ways to define it. The way that you would usually hear it defined is, you know, a behavior that's been repeated enough times to be more or less automatic. But I think there are a couple other interesting lines of attack or lines of explanation that reveal a little bit more about it. So they are these automatic, relatively mindless behaviors, almost like you're playing a cognitive script. You know, you like pick up your toothbrush and then you play the toothbrushing script or you put your shoe on and you play the shoe tying script. But another way to define a habit would be a behavior that is tied to a particular context or environment. So I think that's kind of interesting because it reveals that you cannot have a behavior outside of an environment and habits are often heavily influenced by the environment that we're in. So like your habit of watching Netflix might be tied to the environment of your couch at 7 p.m. Or your habit of journaling each morning might be tied to the coffee shop across the street at 10 a.m. or whatever. And so those behaviors linked to the context around them, I think that's another interesting way to think about it. Hmm. And then the, the third way, and I, there's a, a, a researcher, behavioral economist too, I think his name is Jason Rea. And anyway, I like the way that he defined a habit. He said something to the effect of, they are solutions to recurring problems in your environment. And I like that idea because you could imagine, for example, somebody comes home from work and they're exhausted. So you kind of have this recurring problem around, say, 5.30 each evening, where you're feeling sort of exhausted and stressed and tired from the day. And the brain wants to come up to, with solutions and automate those as best as possible. So one person might fall in the habit of playing video games for a half hour, and that's how they do stress. And another person might smoke a cigarette, and a third person might go for a walk with their spouse. And you can start to see that even though the underlying or root cause is the same or similar, we can come up with very different solutions to that same problem. And so I think in, to a large degree, people sort of stumble into their habits, sometimes literally stumble into them. Like we, you know, just stumble across a solution that, you know, this happens to be the information that came your way throughout life. Often you're imitating the habits that your friends or your family or your parents or somebody what they do to solve that recurring problem. So you Mm -hmm. sort of inherit the habits of the people around you. And then at some point you get to be 20, 25, 30 years old, and you have to like step outside and above yourself and realize, okay, I have all these recurring problems, these things that come again and again that need to get resolved throughout my life. And I have this set of habits that I use to resolve those problems. But what are the odds that the habits that I have now are the optimal solution to the problems that I face repeatedly? It's probably very unlikely in the universe of options that you have that you happen to come across the ideal solution at first. And I think as soon as you realize that, you start to see that your habits are more of your responsibility now. You know, it's your choice as an adult how you respond to these recurring problems. And if you have the option to build habits that solve those things in a healthier or more productive or more fruitful way, then that's your responsibility to try to build those. So I think all of those different lenses give you kind of a various ways of describing a habit and what it is, but that's kind of roughly the role that they play in our lives. Is there a difference that you can generically state between acquiring a good habit and discontinuing a bad one? Is there a different dynamics to that problem? Yeah, that's a great question. So first, I should say, I think it can be very useful to look at your bad habits because, and we, I think we all have had this experience, bad habits seem to form so readily, so easily. And yet good habits can be kind of difficult to, to build and to last. And I think it's interesting to ask, like, why is that? What qualities of a bad habit make it so readily formed? 
And um, so there are quite a few insights that I discussed in Atomic Habits that sort of came from that opposite lens from looking at the inverse. So I'll discuss some of those in a, a few minutes as we kind of get deeper into the conversation. But to answer your question, what's the difference between a good habit and a bad habit? Some people are like, well, if it's bad, why would I do it, right? Like if I know this isn't good for me, why do I keep coming back to it? And depending on which experts you talk to, some habit experts don't even like the terms good and bad because they're like, well, all behaviors serve us in some way. So they, they I don't know, there's kind of this philosophical or semantic discussion about it. I don't know that that's quite right. It goes back to Socrates, essentially, that you know, no one knowingly does bad. Everyone right. has a story about why what they're doing is, is good, at least for them. So I, I think there is truth to that. But from a practical standpoint, from a useful standpoint, I think we can define what a good habit and a bad habit is. And the way to do it is to consider that behaviors produce multiple outcomes across time. So broadly speaking, let's say there's like an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. Now, the immediate outcome of most good habits is, or sorry, most bad habits is pretty favorable. Like the immediate outcome of eating a donut is great. It's sweet, it's sugary, it's tasty, it's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome if you keep repeating that behavior for a year, two years or whatever, that's unfavorable. Same story kind of with like smoking a cigarette. The immediate outcome of smoking a cigarette is, you know, maybe you get to socialize with a friend outside the office or you curb your nicotine craving or you take a break from work or reduce stress. It's only the ultimate outcome that's unfavorable. With good habits, it's often the reverse. Like the immediate outcome of going to the gym, especially that first week or first month, not very favorable. Your body looks the same in the mirror. The scale hasn't really changed. If anything, you're sore. It's only the ultimate outcome a year or two years from now that is favorable. And that misalignment between the immediate outcome and the ultimate outcome, I think mm -hmm. is one reason why it's so easy to slide into bad habits because they feel good in the moment and can be difficult to build good habits because a lot of the returns are delayed. And I think this comes back to some sort of you know, evolutionary wiring. I mean, from the vast majority of human history, humans have lived in what scientists would call an immediate return environment. Almost all of your choices had some kind of immediate or near-term impact on your life. Do I take shelter from a storm? Do I run away from the lion? Do I forage for berries in that bush for my next meal? And then now, really just the last 500 years or so, uh, you know, we could debate exactly how much time, but relatively short in human history, we live in this modern society where a lot of the greatest returns that we get now are actually a delayed return environment. You yeah. go to work today to get a paycheck in two weeks, or you go to class today to get a college degree in four years. You save for retirement today so that you can be retired and free in a decade or two. And so we have this weird shift where increasingly the payoff of delaying gratification or of making long-term choices is greater and greater because of the institutions and society and culture we've set up. And yet our paleolithic minds seem to be wired to prioritize the immediate outcome. And so I think all of that together helps explain sort of what the difference is between a good habit and a bad habit. What, what does that behavior get you in the, the long run, the ultimate outcome? And also why it's like kind of easy to build bad habits and fall into them, slide into them so readily. Mm. So I like to summarize that by just saying the cost of your good habits is in the present. The cost of your bad habits is in the future. And I think mm. that kind of helps describe the difference between the two. Yeah, that's really interesting. It relates to a few other issues we should discuss here, and that is the difference between focusing on goals and focusing on process, because that has significant consequences. And also, there's just this distinction. I know you're familiar with Danny Kahneman's work, and you know he's famous for many things, but one of his useful distinctions is between the remembering self and the experiencing self. And you know, the experiencing self is, is your moment-to-moment -moment experience of your life, and just integrating all the data under that curve is, is what it's like to be you. And if we could ping you randomly 20 times a day and an experience sample from you asking you how you feel in each moment, we would get some, some measure of what it's like to be you. And uh, you'd report back your well-being, such as it seems to you, in a window that's very focused around the present moment. But the remembering self is who comes online when anyone's asked how they feel about their, their life in a, a much more global, retrospective sense. How's your career going? How are your relationships? And 
it's the remembering self that is the one that tends to make decisions about what to do in life, what kinds of goals to pursue, what's in this case, what kinds of habits to rethink and and try to change. And there is, you know, Danny has has noticed and more or less surrendered to this fact that there is a, a reliable mismatch between the remembering self's account of what is good and what is worth doing and and who it's becoming and what its life is like and the experiencing self's data that can be reported back. So you can think you had a terrible time over the last week, but the sampling would say otherwise and vice versa. And he thinks there's really no way to get the remembering self and the experiencing self into, you know, true harmony. I have my doubts about that. I mean, we have a sort of an ongoing disagreement on this front, but I'm wondering what you think about this distinction between what you're doing with your mind when you're making some kind of global assessment of who you are and how it seems and where you want to go and what it's like to be you really moment to moment throughout your life and then how this relates to this effort to change habits and whether we could prioritize a focus on goals, where we want to get to, versus a focus on process or the kinds of systems we create to produce certain results. So let me take the the remembering self versus experiencing self first, and then we can come to the systems and goals piece. Yeah. So I, I, all of Kahneman's work is very interesting, and you know, I my main takeaway from a lot of these discussions, and you'll hear him say this as well a lot of the time. Basically, it comes down to like you will not be the exception. You know, we'll talk about all these biases. And just knowing about them does not shield you from them. Yeah. You still can be the victim of, of all of these things. And so my practical takeaway when it comes to building habits is you don't want to go against the grain of human nature. You want to work with it. And that's one reason, for example, a large part of my philosophy is around making good habits the path of least resistance. Because what you find is that regardless of what your remembering self or your most strategic self would think, if you sit down and try to design out your ideal day or remember what your best performances are like, the truth is moment to moment when you're sitting there and about to make the next decision, we often choose what is easiest or what is the path of least resistance? What is the action that requires the least energy? And so we want to design environments, design a lifestyle and uh, situations that make those good actions as easiest and as obvious as, as possible. And so for that reason, I think that's kind of my main practical takeaway from it. There are a lot of interesting, you know, theoretical or uh, things to just kind of consider. Some of the discussion about the remembering self versus experiencing self reminds me a little bit of, I think Ray Dalio has like a, a little division where he basically says like, you're both the strategic controller of your life and you're the in the mix like operator as well. You know, you're, you're both the CEO and the frontline worker. You're both mm. the general and the soldier. And sometimes we kind of alternate back and forth between those selves. And I think what the best plan that the general can come up with is often very different than what it's like to be on the battlefield as the soldier. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know how it may be possible to get those fully aligned, which is what you're kind of hinting at. Even doing so might be very hard, or maybe it's fleeting. That's kind of how it feels to me, is that occasionally I have moments where I can glimpse that and it's like, how I'm acting or what I'm thinking in the moment is maybe more aligned with what that remembering self would say. But then I get distracted or my attention goes somewhere else or somebody walks in the room or a new project arises and I had it, but I had it only for a moment, almost like chasing a state of flow. It's different than flow, but it's similar in the sense that it doesn't last all the time. Mm. So I don't know. That's just, those are kind of my thoughts off the cuff about it, but uh, happy to talk more about the systems and goals piece as well. Yeah. Let's segue to that. So how do you think about the difference between a focus on goals versus a focus on systems? And I mean, one thing that jumps out to me is that, that goals are, are really just ideas. And even when they're realized, I guess there are different kinds of goals and some can seem more durable than others. But many are, are even in their moment of fulfillment, are enjoyed very briefly. I mean, let's say you decide to you form the goal that you want to run a marathon, and then you, you run your first marathon. Well, you know, that took, you know, if it's your first, it probably took, you know, five or six hours. But uh, however long it took, the moment of fulfilling it, of crossing the finish line, 
then you, you have that fulfillment. And then, you know, thereafter, you have this memory, you have this idea that you met your goal, and you can try to wring out whatever satisfaction you can get out of repeating that to yourself. But the process is, is the life of being someone who, who is now a runner, who, you know, who trained for the marathon and, and hopefully continues to like running thereafter. So they're very different in terms of duration. And most of life is clearly the process. And our goals are these brief landmarks on the landscape of our moment-to-moment living. But I know from your book, there are other consequences to focusing on one versus the other. So how do you think about goals and process or systems? So yeah, that's a great entry point to this discussion, this point. This is one of the core ideas in Atomic Habits, which is that you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And the reason I you know, bring that up or th- feel like it's so, such a central thing is that often when people discuss behavior change, when they talk about habits that they want to shift, it usually is centered around some kind of goal. They start with like, oh, I want to lose 40 pounds, or I'd like to double my income, or I want to reduce stress. They have some kind of outcome that they want. And so the implicit assumption behind that is if I can just achieve this thing, then I'll be the kind of person I want to be. Then I'll have you know the life I want to have. And so there's this focus, heavy, heavily, we are heavily focused on outcomes. But And this sort of comes back a little bit to what you mentioned near the beginning of the conversation where you said, you know, we have habits all the time, but we don't think about them that much. And yet they're kind of in the background influencing all these outcomes that we have. And so the way that I would describe that is most of your outcomes in life are lagging measure of your habits. So for example, your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your physical fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. Even the clutter on your desk at work or in your garage or your bedroom is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And so if you get really motivated and set a big goal, like I have the goal to clean my my room, and then you spend a couple hours doing that, you have a clean room for now. But if you don't change the sloppy, messy habits that led to a dirty room in the first place, then you turn around two weeks later and you got a dirty room again. And so we, we often think that the outputs are the things that need to change, but it's not really the results that need to change. It's like fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. And that's kind of this, this language of systems versus goals. I've, I first heard that, that specific phrase from Scott Adams, but you hear it in many different ways, process over outcome, whatever. It's been discussed you know, ad nauseum for centuries. But to put a little finer point on it and to link it back to habits, this is how I would describe it. Your goal is your desired outcome. It's the thing that you want to achieve. Your system is the collection of daily habits that you follow. And if there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, there's ever a gap between your system and your goal, your daily habits will always win, right? Like almost by definition, Hmm. your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results. Like whatever system you've been running, let's say the last six months or last year, whatever collection of daily habits you've been following have carried you inevitably to this place that you're at right now. And, you know, there again, you know, I mentioned this earlier in the conversation, there are of course other forces, right? There's luck and randomness and so on. But I think largely speaking, we could say that that is true, that you're, that the, the things that you repeat day in and day out, the system that you run carries you to this outcome. And so for the, all of those reasons, I think we should focus much more on the daily habits on the system than we do on the goal and the outcome. And as you mentioned, there's sort of these downsides or, you know, these negative effects that come from focusing too much on, on the goals. So the first one is that, as you mentioned, achieving a goal really only changes your life for the moment. You know, like it's only, it's only a momentary thing. It doesn't make, it's not like, this is one of my challenges when people talk about like, a 30-day challenge for habits or you know 21 days and then the habit is formed or whatever. It's like habits are not really a finish line to be crossed in that sense. You know, they're not, it's not like just do this for a little while and then you'll be a healthy person. Achieving a, a goal only changes your life for the moment. The second thing though, and I thought this was so interesting when I first came across it, is that the winners and the losers, so to speak, in any given domain, they often have exactly the same goal. So, mm. you know, say you're at the Olympics and you've got 25 people competing in an event. Presumably, all of them have the goal of winning the gold medal, right? It's not the goal that makes the difference in their performance. Or 
if you have a job opening and 100 people apply for a job, presumably all of the candidates have the goal of getting the job. And so a goal might be necessary, but it's not sufficient for success. What you really need is the daily habits, the preparation, the uh, behaviors that lead to that outcome. Now, now that I've criticized goals a little bit, I should say, I, I do think they can be useful. Uh, and two of the things that I think they can be useful for. So one is clarity, setting a sense of direction. If you have a clear goal, you know what direction you want to row in, or in the case of a team, what direction you want the whole team to row in, get everybody on the same page. And I also think they're useful for filtering. If you have a goal and somebody comes to you with an opportunity and they say, hey, would you like to join or work on this project? Or can I interest, you know, are you interested in this? You can run it through that filter of your goal and it's easier to say no if it's like, oh no, that doesn't help me achieve my goal. But short of that, I think that it's much more useful to focus on the habits in the system. And most of the time we probably spend, I don't know, 80% of our time, let's say, talking about outcomes and goals and what we want to achieve and what the future should look like. Yeah. Uh, and I think it should be flipped around. It should be, that's fine. We know where we want to head. Now let's put the goal on the shelf and focus instead on the system and the daily behaviors. Yeah, and another way to merge these two ways of thinking is to recognize that the real goal that you want to achieve, I mean, the, the, the more rational goal is to find a, a mode of life that is genuinely fulfilling. And by definition, that has to be a process that you find fulfilling, right? It can't be just the landmarks that go whizzing by as you reach your goals. This is where the hope of getting the, the remembering self and the experiencing self to converge for me is found, if it can be realized. It's in, in recognizing that, that more and more your life is genuinely fulfilling, not just at the retrospective level of the story you tell yourself, but in the moment-to-moment -moment sampling of your experience, you realize you're satisfied with it, and those satisfactions can become deeper and more subtle and more ethically salient and just a, there's a there's an integrity and a a harmony to one's living that is there's not these radical discontinuities between who you wish you were and hope to be and who you in fact are in each moment you know you're you're hoping to be a good parent but you're you find yourself shrieking at your kids in a way that later embarrasses you, right? Like ironing that stuff out is a goal to which it's rational to be devoted. And the only way to do that is in improving moment to moment responses to one's life. And I mean, so it is with anything else like, you know, fitness, right? Like it's, yes, you want the goal, you need to have the goal in mind of achieving a certain level of fitness. Well, you know, let's say it's, you want to, you want the scale to give you a certain number when you step on it or you want to be able to lift a certain amount of weight. But the actual satisfaction comes in finding a, a way of working out that you actually love to do. It's satisfying to do it in a way that a bad habit is satisfying. It's just not the future that is paying dividends for you, but it's actually what you want to do in the moment. I agree with that. You know, a habit is not a finish line to be crossed. It's a lifestyle to be lived. And it's really yeah. once you embrace that lifestyle, once that is aligned, as you're mentioning, you also, to bring it back to what we spoke about a couple moments ago, about the rewards of good habits often being delayed, you're no longer delaying it then, right? You're right. feeling good in that moment. And so that I think makes it much more likely that you'll stick to good habits. And this also, this is another one of the core ideas in the book, this concept of identity-based habits of, you know, the goal is not to finish a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to read 30 books a year. It's to become a reader. The goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat. It's to become a meditator. And it's really once you start to assign that identity to yourself, which I think is best done through building small habits that reinforce that identity, mm. then, you know, in a sense, true behavior change is really identity change. Because once you have this new narrative to tell yourself, once you have this new way to look at yourself, you're not even really forcing yourself to do it anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you see yourself to be. And so this, I think, is probably the ultimate reason that habits are so important. Like we often discuss habits as the pathway to external results. Oh, building good habits will help you make more money or lose weight or reduce stress. And it's true. They can help you do all those things. And that's great. 
But I think the real reason that habits matter is that they reinforce your sense of identity. They give you, it's kind of like every action you take is like a vote for the type of person that you wish to become. Mm. And so no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And no, doing one push-up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And the first time or the fifth time or the 30th time you do that, maybe you haven't shifted the story that you have about yourself, but you do it for six months or a year or two years. And so at some point you cross this invisible threshold and you're like, yeah, maybe I am a writer or maybe I am, you know, an athlete or whatever it is that you're building. Maybe I am a meditator. Mm. And so you need to build those small habits so that you can cast votes for believing this self-narrative, this story about yourself. And ultimately, once you get enough evidence built up, I, I think that's really the key is that habits provide evidence. It's, it's different than, um, than what you typically hear, which is like fake it till you make it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have anything wrong with fake it till you make it. It's asking you to believe something positive about yourself, but it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion, right? Yeah. Like at some point... Your brain doesn't like this mismatch between, oh, I'm saying I'm one type of person, but I'm doing something else. So behavior and beliefs are like this two-way street. They feed each other and influence each other. But my argument is, let's start with the behavior. Let's start with one push-up or meditating for one minute or writing one sentence. And let's that, let that provide undeniable evidence that you are that kind of person. And once you get enough of it, then you can get to the point that you're, you're talking about, which is just doing it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm being the kind of person I want to be. Like I'm aligned. Like I have this match between what I desire and how I'm acting. And that feels good in the moment. And it becomes easier to stick with it because it, it just feels like it's reinforcing my desired identity. Mm. Yeah, I'll just say as a footnote, there, there is one place where faking it until you make it truly works. So there really is no distance between fakery and the achievement of one's end. And that's in every instance where courage is the thing you're trying to fake. Faking Mm. courage and real courage are the same thing. I mean, courage is you attempting a certain behavior or performing something despite being afraid to do it, being afraid of failure, being afraid of some negative outcome. And so just, you know, putting yourself on the line, whether it's, let's say you're, you're shy and you're, you know, you're afraid to make social encounters with people or you're you're afraid of public speaking or whatever it is, the actual surmounting of your fear is what courage is. So in that sense, you really, you really can arrive when you, by merely attempting to do it. It almost makes me wonder if like all courage is faked, you know? Yeah. Like if, if you don't have fear to surmount, is it really courageous? Are you just like (laughs) ignorant or don't fully realize the situation or practice it enough times that you no longer feel the fear? It's a very interesting thing, but yeah, as long as the behavior is delivered, no, no one knows the difference between what kind of internal story is going on there, whether you're terrified or not. Yeah. So this relates to the, really the primacy of incremental change and the, the compounding effects of small changes. And it's something you, you go into in detail in your book. Let's talk about this compound interest principle and why people are, are so slow to see its significance in their lives. Well, my favorite example or story of this is the British cycling team. So they, uh, for many years, almost 100 years, British cycling was incredibly mediocre on the world stage. And around 2003, 2004, they hired this guy named Dave Brailsford, who came in as sort of their new performance director. And he had one concept that made him a little bit different than the coaches who had come before. And he referred to it as the aggregation of marginal gains. And so The way that he described it was the 1% improvement in nearly everything we do that's related to cycling. So for example, you know, they started with a bunch of stuff you would expect a cycling team to do. They put slightly lighter tires on the bike. They asked their riders to wear these little biofeedback sensors to see how everybody responded to training. And then they'd address the practice protocols to each person. They rented out a wind tunnel. So they've got indoor racing suits and outdoor racing suits. And they're made of different fabrics. And so they tested both fabrics in the wind tunnel. And uh, they found out that the indoor suits were lighter and more aerodynamic. So they asked all of their riders to wear that fabric. 
But then they did a bunch of things that you like wouldn't expect a cycling team to do. Like they hired a surgeon to come in and teach the riders how to wash their hands to reduce the risk of catching a cold or getting the flu. They split tested different massage gels to see which one led to the best muscle recovery. They have this real big truck, this like semi truck that carries all the bikes to different uh, events. And they painted the inside of that truck white so that they could spot little bits of dirt and dust and, you know, might get in the gears and degrade the performance of the bikes. They also asked all the riders to test like, I don't know, 20, 30 different types of pillows and see which one led to the best night's sleep. And then they would bring those pillows on the road with them to hotels for the Tour de France or other big races. And you can kind of see where this is going here, right? They're just investigating every little area and trying to find some small improvement in it. And Brailsford said, you know, something like, if we can do this, right, if we can actually execute all these little 1% improvements, then I think we can win a Tour de France within five years. He ended up being wrong. They won the Tour de France in three years. And then they repeated again the next year with a different rider. And then I think there was a one-year break, and then they won three more. So five out of the next six years, they win the Tour de France after having never won for, you know, 110 years. And then at the Olympics in London in 2012, that's kind of when it fully blossomed because you got the Tour de France, there's a team element to it, but there's only one person that wins the race. But at the Olympics, you've got men's team, women's team, dozens of riders, dozens of events. And uh, the British cycling team wins 70% of the gold medals available. Rio 2016, same story. I think 60% of the gold medals go to the British team. And so this idea that 1% improvements are not just like nice to have, you know, they're not just like this cherry on top of your performance or kind of cool, but like relatively insignificant, but actually can be this pathway to unlocking elite levels of success. I think that's surprising, a little counterintuitive. But also it speaks to why building better habits are so important because if you can build better habits, if you can make a small 1% improvement in your daily habits, you don't just reap that benefit once, you reap it day after day. And so it starts to not only add up, it starts to like compound. And this is sort of a, a hallmark of any compounding process, which is the greatest returns are delayed. You know, like if you've got that hockey stick curve at the very beginning, there's not really a whole lot of difference on day one or day five or day 10 between a choice that's 1% better, or 1% worse is very insignificant. Like the difference between eating a salad for lunch today versus eating a burger and fries on any given day, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. You look the same in the mirror at the end of the night, you feel relatively similar, but if you turn around two or five or 10 years later, then you're like, oh, wow, those daily choices really do add up, right? Those habits really do matter. And that I think, you know, habits are not exactly like compounding interests. They're not exactly like that compound curve, but they feel like it a lot of the time. The difference between a choice that's 1% better, 1% worse seems pretty insignificant, even though it really compounds in the long run. Hmm. And so for all of those reasons, I like to say habits are the compound interests of self-improvement. You know, the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. And so if you have good habits, time becomes your ally. All you got to do is wait for another day to go by. All you need is patience because every day that goes by, you're putting yourself in a better position. But if you have bad habits, time becomes your enemy. Every day that clicks by, you dig the hole a little bit deeper. And that I think is one of the, we all have experienced this. We know this with habits, which is habits are a double-edged sword, right? They can build you up or cut you down. And I think that helps explain why it's so crucial to understand what a habit is and how it works and how to change it, because then you can be the architect of your habits and not the victim of them. Yeah, that asymmetric relationship with respect to time is interesting. How do you think of the role of attention here in that there are consequences to what people pay attention to? I guess the quality of one's attention is relevant. I mean, this is something that's very close to my wheelhouse of you know, thinking about mindfulness and, and just moment to moment what we notice about our experience. But just more generally speaking, what one pays attention to, you know, the valence of, of what one pays attention to and how it affects habit formation. And I guess it opens to questions of the role of discipline and willpower and successfully advertising what one wants to oneself to kind of stay on the path one has decided to stay on 
Just how do you think about what one is doing with one's mind through this process? So I think attention is crucial. I mentioned earlier that I kind of feel like there are these three major pillars or influences on life, luck and randomness, habits and behaviors, and then strategy and choices. So I'm going to divide attention into those last two categories. So you've got, let me give an example real quick. Let's say you have two entrepreneurs and the first one decides to start like a local pizza parlor and the second one decides to start a software company. And you could sort of from that moment of choosing where to focus their attention, one person will focus on pizza and the other person will focus on software. You could sort of draw a dotted line out into the future of what the potential energy for, let's call it that, of that choice is. And I think most people would say the software startup probably has the higher curve, the greater potential energy to become a big business. And so your choices, I think, set the amount of potential energy that you have available. But your habits determine how far you walk along that line. And mm. so you could say that the person who starts the pizza shop, if they've got really killer habits and they execute really well, they may have a much better business two or five or 10 years from now than the software entrepreneur who just had a good idea but couldn't execute. And so you need both. And I think about attention sort of in that, I guess we could call this like a fractal way or a hierarchy. You kind of, you got these big picture uses of attention. What career do I choose? What city do I live in? Which spouse do I choose? And what project am I going to work on in the case of this entrepreneurship example? And that creates a lot of potential energy or maybe less if the choice is, is less wise. And then you've got like these small granular uses of attention. What am I focused on this moment? What am I focused on, you know, for this particular action? And that I think is a, a different thing. Like one is more strategic uh, and the other one is more like reactionary almost or in the moment. And in the case of your habits, those choices are in that second bucket. They're happening in the moment right now. Like you're uh, the moment when you act, uh, you're in the present versus thinking about something strategic that you want to do. And I think both of them are really, really crucial. And the good news is, of course, you don't have to choose. Like ideally, we're both making great choices or following really good strategy and we're executing at a very high level. But I like to describe it as your effort sets your floor, your strategy sets your ceiling. So your habits are setting your floor. Hard work will always be helpful. It will always be important. Showing up and performing the reps, doing the habits, that will set the floor that you have. But the ceiling that you could reach, that's determined by those more strategic choices. Uh, and so the ceiling for the software startup is always going to be higher. But the hard work that you put in may make the pizza shop more of a success. Hmm. So I think that's kind of how I see those two working together. Now, to bring it back to habits and your question about attention, certainly practices like mindfulness and so on can increase your control over your attention, increase your maybe self-awareness, if we want to call it that, or your ability to pull yourself back to center in the moment to redirect your attention to the more useful thing when you get distracted and so on. I think that's really helpful. As much as possible, though, I prefer not to rely on conscious direction of attention to perform the habit. I would prefer to design an environment where you do the right thing, even if you're distracted, or even if you don't have much motivation, or even if you're tired and willpower and discipline are, are feeling exhausted. And that largely comes down to environment design, putting good options around you, reducing the distractions, as well as a little bit of like, what well, I guess we could call habit strategy, just by reducing the scope of the habit, making it easier to do. And we can talk about all that, mm -hmm. but that's kind of how I feel attention and the, like the role it plays between strategy and habits and big picture versus small picture in the moment. Yeah. Well, there's this principle of I guess I would refer to as, as chunking behavior. It's almost related to the way we chunk memories, but there, there are whole routines we follow to accomplish a single goal. And once they really are a matter of habit, there's really nothing to rethink in them. And, and you've referenced many in this conversation, so something like brushing your teeth. Every time we get up in the morning, there's really no uncertainty as to whether or not we're going to brush our teeth. We, we managed to do this every day without having to recommit to the decision. That decision was made in the midst of our deep past. We have no memory of, of having decided to do this, and we've done it without fail more or less every day for our entire lives. And you're sure you're going to do it tomorrow, as sure as you are of, of anything. And so when we're talking about forming a, a new habit that we want to form, 
we want to get to that point where it really is a kind of automaticity and the system by which we're achieving this goal has however many steps it has the steps are such that we don't have to rethink them and it's, it's worth thinking about what a system is it's a pattern wherein many prior decisions have been encoded so that you don't have to make those decisions again obviously there's a there's a reason to occasionally step out of of this and get the view from above and rethink systems and decide whether you know they can be optimized but once you're satisfied with the system you're using to produce a certain outcome, then the goal, if we can call it such, is to make it a lot like brushing your teeth, where you just do it, you know you know how to do it, and it requires, as you say, no more attention from you. You have a few frameworks in which you think about how to accomplish this, and, and one thing you refer to is, is what you call the, the four laws of behavior change. It seems like now might be a good moment to invoke those. So... Roughly speaking, if you want to build a good habit, there are four-ish things that you kind of want working for you. And you don't always need all four, but the more that you have of these kind of working in your favor, the more likely it is the behavior will stick and be repeated. So the first law of behavior change is that you want to make it obvious. You want the cues of your good habits to be obvious, available, visible, easy to see. The easier it is to see or get your attention, the more likely it is that you're going to you know, perform the behavior. The second law is to make it attractive. So the more attractive or appealing a habit is, the more likely you're going to feel motivated to do it. And this is largely about the meaning that you assign to the cues in your life. The more that you associate like a positive or an appealing uh, meaning or emotion with that cue, the more motivated you're going to feel to pursue it or to act on it. The third law is to make it easy, the more easy, convenient, frictionless, simple habits are the more likely they are to be repeated. And then the fourth law is to make it satisfying. The more satisfying or enjoyable a habit is, the more that it's associated with like a positive emotion, it gives your brain this signal where it says, hey, that felt good. Like you should repeat this again next time. And there are a lot of different ways to apply those ideas, but that kind of framework of make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. It gives you a high level way to design a good habit and then if you want to break a bad habit, you just do the inverse of those four. So rather than making it obvious, you want to make your bad habits invisible. Unsubscribe from emails. Uh, if you're trying to lose weight, don't follow food bloggers on Instagram. If you don't want to spend as much money on electronics, then stop reading the latest tech review blogs, right? You're like constantly being triggered or tempted to do the thing you want mm -hmm. to avoid. So make it invisible. Instead of making it attractive, make it unattractive. Instead of making it easy, make it difficult. So increase friction, add steps, put more steps between you and the bad behavior. And then uh, rather than making it satisfying, make it unsatisfying. Add a consequence, have there be some kind of immediate cost to the behavior. And the more that you can follow those four things, the easier it is, I think, to avoid bad habits and to build good ones. So let's take a habit like starting a meditation practice or starting to work out regularly if you don't do that and um, try to just map it through these four laws because what both of these have in common and what many good habits that don't naturally just happen to us have in common is that as you say the benefits aren't immediately obvious in fact there's a, rather than a benefit we feel the cramp of this new thing being hard to do, even unpleasant to do, right? So it's with meditation, people feel restless. They're trying to meditate and they immediately confront how distracted they are. And they're just, you know, that feels worse than their normal experience of just doing whatever the hell they want to do moment by moment. So there's something to overcome there. And so it is, as you said, with working out, you get to the gym and all of this is new and really the, the, the only immediate payoff is it's taken time and now you're a little sore and you you haven't yet crossed over to being the person. It was both with meditation and with working out, there is this crossing over experience where ultimately it's no longer about the goal. You've actually, you've learned to find satisfaction even in what may be classically unpleasant as a matter of, you know, moment to moment stimuli, right? So it's like 
this is very clear with working out, where you know the, the burn of lifting weights and the, just the real physical stress of it in the beginning for most people is something they just hate, and ultimately it flips and it becomes the very thing you you love about it. How do you think about getting over this hump, and how can the the four laws be used as a way of jiggering one's mind and and behavior such that it becomes more likely to happen? Yeah, that's an interesting example. It's similar to what I mentioned a moment ago, where you like reassign the meaning. Uh, your muscle mm. is still burning, but now suddenly it's a signal that you did something good, that you're taking care of yourself, that you're acting in alignment with the type of person you want to be, rather than a signal of, oh, this is painful. I feel stupid. I'm not sure if I belong in the gym, you know, whatever. So let's take meditation. All right. So, first law, make it obvious. I'm just going to run through these and kind of give some practical ideas. So is it obvious where the behavior is going to occur? So this comes back to the environment piece I mentioned earlier. Uh, habits are behaviors that are tied to a particular context. So do you have a space? Do you have either a chair that's your meditation chair or a spot on the floor where your pillow sits or a particular room in your house or office or whatever that's the meditation room? But it doesn't matter whether it's a space or a whole room to itself or whatever, but I think it should be obvious where the behavior exists. And there are actually a few studies that have shown that it's easier to build a new habit in a new environment. Sometimes, for mm. example, they talk about people building habits when they're on vacation or in a room that they don't normally go into or whatever. But the way to think about this, I think, is that all the rooms that you currently visit, they sort of have like a behavioral bias to them. So, you know, like if your couch is the place where you watch Netflix, then when you go in and try to meditate there, you're sort of unconsciously being pulled toward picking up the remote and turning the TV on, even if you wouldn't actually say it like that, but you're sort of fighting against the behaviors that usually happen in that space. So right. that's why it's helpful to, I think, even if it's in the same room, even if it's still in the living room, get a new chair and put that in the corner and that becomes the reading chair, or the meditation chair or whatever. So making it obvious where the behavior is going to occur, I think that's a good first step. Second thing you can do, uh, this also is still with the first law, make it obvious. There's a strategy, and there have been hundreds of studies on this, called implementation intentions. And an implementation intention is when you fill out a sentence that states your intention to implement the behavior at a particular time or place. So, for example, there was one exercise study that found that people were two to three times more likely to work out if they filled out this one sentence that said, I will partake in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise on this day at this time in this place. Similar studies have been done for increasing the odds that you show up to the polls and vote. If you say, I'm going to vote on November 4th at 11 a.m. at this polling station or getting your flu shot. I will go get my flu shot on November 12th at this doctor's office. Recycling, quitting smoking, all kinds of things. So it sounds simple to say, oh, you should just come up with a plan for when you're going to meditate. But the truth is, I think a lot of people wake up each day and they think, oh, I hope I feel motivated to meditate today. Again, even if they aren't consciously saying that to themselves, you know, people are just sort of like, uh, you know, I hope I have the energy to go to the gym or it feels like a good day to write or whatever it is. So a lot of times people feel like they lack motivation when what they really lack is clarity. And mm -hmm. if you fill out that sentence, then you know with great clarity exactly when and where the behavior is going to occur. You make it very obvious. So environment design, implementation intentions. Second step, make it attractive. The more attractive or appealing the habit is, the more you feel motivated to do it. I think this could be done by choosing the type of meditation that feels most exciting or appealing to you. You know, so like, let's say, for example, that the idea of just sitting and listening to your breath or focusing on your breath sounds kind of boring to you. But the idea of having a guided meditation, maybe that's more enjoyable. Maybe even one with, I don't know, a little bit of light music. And if that sounds more appealing, do that form of the habit early on. With many habits in the beginning, the objective is to fall in love with doing the habit. And after you fall in love with it, then you can branch out to all kinds of stuff. You can, you know, try things of different intensity or try the more difficult version or whatever. But the first objective is to make it something that you love and something that's part of your daily life. So I think make it appealing, make it attractive. That's, that's the second law. Third law, make it easy. So this is mostly, I would say, in the case of meditation, scale it down. Rather than judging yourself for not meditating for 15 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is every day, 
Just meditate for 60 seconds to start. Master the habit of showing up. My favorite story about this, there's this reader of mine, his name's Mitch, and I mentioned him in Atomic Habits. He, he ended up losing over 100 pounds. But for the first six weeks that he went to the gym, he, was, he had this little rule where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So mm. he would get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? You're like, this is silly. It's not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But I think this is a deeper truth about habits that people often overlook, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? It has to become the standard in your life before you can worry about optimizing or scaling it up. If it's just, you know, meditating for an hour every day is great in theory, but if it just remains a theory, there's nothing to work on. There's no raw material to work with. So meditating for 60 seconds doesn't sound as sexy, but if we can get it established, then you've got some raw material to build on. Then you have something to optimize. And so making it easy is a, a, the third law. And I think that's a good way to apply that there. And then the fourth one is make it satisfying. I think actually, Sam, your app does a good job with this with like the streaks and so on. If you see your streak building up, you get to check off another day. That's satisfying. It's a small thing, but it feels good to build that up. Habit trackers, whether it's, you know, in an app or putting an X on a calendar or whatever ways to measure your progress. That really, I think, is one of the bigger picture things about making a habit satisfying is you want some way to visualize your progress. Because if you feel like you're making progress with your habits, you have every reason in the world to continue. And so I think those kind of four things, you know, optimizing the environment, maybe writing out an implementation intention, choosing the type of meditation that feels most appealing to you and making it short and easy to do, especially in the beginning. And then having some way to visualize your progress and feel satisfied with it, you start to layer those strategies together and uh, it becomes much easier to build, to build a better habit. And this is something that I mentioned at the, the very end of Atomic Habits, this idea that we talked about 1% changes, but the holy grail of habit change is not like a single 1% improvement. You know, it's, it's a thousand of them. You're layering these little things on top of each other. You're trying to build a system to bring it back to what we talked about earlier a system for change. You know, it's not, it's not just one little thing that's going to radically transform your life. It's a commitment to layering these things on top of each other. So those are some quick examples of how to maybe do that with meditation. I mean, meditation is an interesting example because it doesn't follow the same pattern as most other habits one would want to acquire in that in the end, it's not about becoming a meditator or just log in your hour or your 15 minutes every day. It's something you want to bleed through into every moment of life where you're punctuating your, your ambient confusion and distraction with moments of you know, very clear awareness. And mm -hmm. so doing it many, many times throughout the day for five seconds is on some level preferable to doing it in a, a single batch early in the day and thinking you're done. I mean, that's to sort of misconceive the whole project. So finding these little outposts in time that are kind of, you know, micro habits is even, in my view, more advantageous. And there's actually a phrase you use somewhere, which I guess speaks to the, this fourth law of making it satisfying, this concept of temptation bundling that I think originates with someone else. But it, First, describe what that is and perhaps apply it to a very short meditation, maybe, maybe you know, a one-minute meditation as opposed to what one would consider one's daily practice. Yeah. Well, first, I should just say, I love that idea of what you're talking about, these little five-second ones throughout the day. You know, it could be like, after I sit down in my office chair, I meditate for five seconds um, or 15 yeah. or whatever it is. And, you know, every, you're sitting down, you know, maybe a dozen times a day or more. And so you get all these little bursts. So the, the key there is to find something to anchor it to that is like a repeated action that is pretty reliable. So if you find the right yeah. thing to tie the habit to, it can be very powerful. So that concept, by the way, of like stacking habits together. So that's a concept from BJ Fogg. He's a professor at Stanford. Um, he's got this program called Tiny Habits. Talks about that whole like pairing behaviors together much more. Temptation bundling is a concept from Katie Milkman. She's a researcher at uh, Wharton, uh, University of Pennsylvania. And the whole idea behind temptation bundling is just pairing the habit that you need to do with something that you already want to do. And so you're trying to get that habit associated with a positive emotion. So as you mentioned, you know, that fourth law is make it satisfying. 
And so by finding something that makes you feel good already and linking it to the habit, you're, you're kind of like, to a certain degree, you're sort of hacking the system in the sense of like pairing that feeling with this new behavior. So what Milkman did, she, at the time that she was working on this, she really enjoyed reading the Hunger Games books. And she knew that she needed to be working out more. And so she created this little rule where she was only allowed to read the Hunger Games if she was on the treadmill at the gym. And so she took something she wanted to do, read the book, with something she needed to do, go for a run. And now she's got this more positive emotion associated with being on the treadmill. The most extreme version of this that I heard, I, I was researching the book. There was this engineering student from Ireland, and he uh, used his engineering degree to hack his, uh, his stationary bike such that he connected it to his laptop so that Netflix would pause if he was not pedaling. So he basically like binge watched himself to a better body where he just, he had to be cycling in order to watch any of his favorite shows. Mm -hmm. But there are a variety of examples, you know, like if you know that what you need to do is answer overdue work emails, but what you want to do is to get a pedicure, then you're only allowed to get pedicures while you're also answering emails. So there's just this idea of like trying to associate the habit with something positive. In the case of meditation, the first one that came to my mind was music. So you could do something like pick one of your favorite songs and every time after you meditate for one minute, you listen to your favorite song. And that, you know, music is kind of like this drug that hacks your mind in that way. It just elicits so many positive feelings if you pick the right music. And so by associating it with that, you almost, you could almost even like layer it on top of each other. You could say, my habit is when I sit down in my office chair, I meditate for 60 seconds, and then I listen to my favorite song and I smile. And again, sounds like a small thing, but all of that is done in you know three minutes or five minutes, and you feel really good at the end of it. And pretty soon you're starting to associate meditation with feeling really good. And that's kind of where we're trying to get to. Well, James, it's been um, a great tour of positive change that many of us almost never consciously engage. I mean, we we spend a lot of our lives feeling like the the mere inheritors of who we used to be and it's amazing to me how it's like basically everything we care about is susceptible to making the kinds of incremental changes we've discussed here and it's so rare to consciously seize the reins of this machinery here and and approach it systematically so thank you for all the, the work you've done in this area and for taking the time to discuss it with me Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. 